Welcome to the Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Head of Global Sanctions and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today is Julia Friedlander, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the Geoeconomic Centre of the Atlantic Council. For those unfamiliar with the Atlantic Council, it is a non-partisan organisation which looks to galvanise US global leadership, engagement with allies, partners, across a whole range of global challenges. So Julia, welcome. It's a real pleasure to have you join us today. Thanks so much, Justine. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin with the diversity of your career, because it is such an interesting career. It's included the CIA, the US Treasury. You've been detailed to the National Security Council at the White House. And this year you've joined the Atlantic Council. So some exciting moves there for you. With all of this experience, how in your current role do you go about assessing the intersection of economics, finance and foreign policy? And indeed, where do sanctions fit into all of this? It's a complicated question and something that I've been personally wrestling with for years. So I always served as an economic analyst, as an economist within national security organizations and felt that there was an artificial bifurcation between economics. So like the world of numbers, and I'm using air quotes here when I'm talking to you and foreign policy. And maybe it was easier to do this when global GDP wasn't as diversified, when we saw Western economies as sort of more arbors of of the global economy. It seemed to me at the time, especially when I was at the the agency, that intelligence analysis traditionally used economics as a factor in foreign policy decision making. So more as a question of resource constraints and not as a tool of foreign policy in and of itself. That's what's changing right now. And we're seeing increasingly over the past several years, right, that economic statecraft, right, this is a high term, you know, what we use best to describe the use of financial and regulatory tools as the main actors in the play. So that these are actually, they're emerging as the determinants of international power. And this isn't easy stuff, I think, for Western economies, for, you know, such as the UK or the United States. We're accustomed to thinking of ourselves as free markets, free marketeers, right? We believe in the open movement of global capital and the idea that these tools and that we have to use the restriction of global commerce in the defense of our own interests is, is an uncomfortable balance. The question is, how do we implement standards for this and not create big economic distortions that are going to hurt everybody? Speaking to your point, Justine, sanctions are really the central example of this, because I think we're really at a point where we're saying, what are sanctions really? What do they actually do? Uh, There's somewhere between a serious finger wag, you know, when diplomatic speak, we'd say a demarche and and then a financial hand grenade. We could use them to reprimand a foreign country, even if we aren't sure assets will be frozen. And, you know, there are certain examples where the U.S. government has sanctioned an individual, even though we know we're not freezing U.S. dollar denominated assets or to cut off a specific illicit financial flow. And this is an ongoing philosophical debate, I think, among sanctions practitioners. But it shows that sanctions are really the perfect example of the intersection between regulation and foreign policy. And, you know, the people who are listening to this podcast will probably understand the real important role they play. Gosh, and I love that description of sometimes the financial hand grenade. And there is just so much there that you've set out. And obviously, all of your work has been about defining national security priorities, looking at the risks, you know, prioritizing what's the most important area to look at. And it's a really sensitive balance that needs to be achieved. Now you're sitting in the Atlantic Council 
do you look at priority setting these national security threats in a very different way to when you were in government? Is there a bit more freedom of thinking? Uh, well, there's certainly a, a lot of freedom of thinking, practically speaking, right? You're no longer um, working with diplomatic talking points or with government talking points. And then I have to say the first time you get a call from a reporter, you sort of stall out and say, oh, what do I actually really think? I actually get to say what I think and not try to explain what the government has decided to do. That's certainly an immediate transition. Um, and then say, like, what, what's something productive that you can say and not just complain about something that you think went wrong? So, I, you know, you see a lot of that, I think, out there in, in the press. And so I think it's important to sort of keep yourself on track. The United States government is a really big, varied place. And when, you know, when you serve in the National Security Council, yeah, you serve the president, you serve the National Security Advisor. But your real job is to bring all the departments and agencies around the table to reach a common decision point, um, so, you know, it's collective decision making. And this is easier said than done because, of course, everyone, you know, it's, again, a big government and everybody represents a very different set of equities. Um, but in the end, we all work for the same God, right? Like we're all we are all government employees um, and the conversations are, are classified. Um, and when you, you know, when you step out and you say, what, what's the next step um, handling some of these very interdisciplinary and as you say, sticky and sensitive issues, you realize that the concepts play out in many other ways and you have to involve a much broader set of actors that aren't in the government. And this is particularly the private sector. So what organizations such as the Atlantic Council can do is to serve as a master convener to try to generate policy outcomes by bringing people together in a different way. That's what you miss when you're on the inside. I mean, I often felt like, why can't I invite ex CEO into this situation room? You can't do that. That's against government policy, and that's what you miss. And, and it's dangerous, I think, when you're when you when we're teetering on the edge of what some people, you know, when we're talking about you know economic concerns with China, that we're going for a decoupling and Cold War 2.0 and sort of these militarized terms for economic and financial policy. Again, I think that's really dangerous. And so that what you can do when you're on the outside, when you're at a think tank is to try to find new creative ways of bringing the private sector into national security deliberations and not saying, OK, your involvement is as, you know, as a lobbyist uh, asking for certain policies that generate better commercial outcomes, but actually be one of the stakeholders at, at the table. That's what I hope to do in the coming years. And I just want to change track slightly because in that freedom of thinking that you've talked about and looking at things through a broader lens, you know, you've actually just published a report on Russian dark money. And in this, you talk about how warfare has evolved into something hybrid involving cyber, finance and other types of elements. What does this evolution mean for the next phase national security area? And will this impact future sanctions programs, do you think? Yeah, well, the short answer is absolutely. You know, you have to sort of take an analytical perspective and step back and say, okay, so why do we use these terms hybrid, right? And I think that, you know, everyone likes to throw it around. I mean, from, from my perspective, it starts with the fact that the global economy is massively financialized and depending on international markets and to determine what a value actually means. What is the price of something? And that goes from commodities, of course, internationally traded commodities, but also the price of labor and the determining factors that led to growing inequality within economies when resources are spent abroad. We're seeing increasingly that national security is a factor in that regard in domestic policies. It hasn't been in, you know, over the past 20 years. 
this also means that we can use economic choke points more effectively and global actors can use them to give themselves an advantage. And, you know, maybe it's an exporter's nightmare. You know, we all sort of like to think that, you know, if you look at your neat trade models that you learned in graduate school, this kind of stuff doesn't exist. We're at a certain time when, you know, the, again, like the financialization of the economy coincides with uh, domestic sentiment against never-ending wars, right? And it's not just that the U.S. feels this way, right? This is not just the, you know, what, you know, both President Trump and, you know, President-elect Biden both talk about. I think, you know, you could say that Putin struggles with public opinion just in the same way overseas deployments. Public opinion asking, you know, what are we still doing in Syria and Ukraine? The way that we would say, what are we still doing in Afghanistan or Iraq? That's the starting point. The report, it talks about huge figures. I mean, roughly one trillion of Russian dark money hidden abroad. First of all, I actually really want to know how we we understand it's one trillion. But also more importantly, when you look at this through a US national security lens, what does that one trillion being abroad really mean? Where do the risks really manifest themselves? Sure. I mean, so so just to start out, one trillion is obviously an estimate. It's based on, you know, the valuation of Russian domestic assets, on bank ledgers, on what people know about certain holdings of certain individuals. Again, it's, it's an estimate. Um, but of course, it's a huge one, right? And it's something that I think that um, that shouldn't be underestimated both in terms of what the, those funds can do abroad, but also, of course, what it does that those funds are not flowing within the Russian domestic economy. I think this was the most difficult part of the report to write. Um, and again, this is something I've struggled with for years because we don't traditionally view assets as a threat based on the jurisdiction they're coming from. So, I mean, unless you're, you have an embargo on the country, unless it's, you know, North Korea effectively or, or Cuba, you know, and the rubric of U.S. policy that way. So we've never thought of Russian money as being dangerous just because it's Russian. We know that the nature of the of, of the Russian economy that it's you know based on large degree on, on kleptocracy, but just because Russian actors are using the U.S. to avoid taxes or confiscation by the Kremlin doesn't necessarily mean it's a a risk to U.S. national security. Is you know like taxation and tax evasion is you know has been sort of um, conceptually bifurcated from from money laundering. But over time, we get it, we've gotten a better picture of how harboring these dark money slowly erodes the health of financial institutions, you know, can affect their balance sheets with large scale money laundering scandals. You know, you can collapse the entire financial system of a smaller country. You could consider that in and of itself a, a national security issue. Or then, you know, serve as vehicles to undermine uh, democratic governance with, with um, certainly influencing certain political actors. Um, and when the U.S. or the U.K. or the EU, you know, harbor these funds that are used for malign activities in third countries as well. So, you know, if you don't know the exact nature of a certain fund or a certain bank deposit, you know, we can move again quickly to counter your national security interests in a third jurisdiction. If you're concerned about overseas deployments, you have to also understand that there are resources behind those same conflicts that you're engaged in militarily, right? And I think that that's a, that's a big question, particularly when it comes to Syria. And so, you know, we can do something about it. The problem is, is what we've seen, you know, we have this framework for terrorist financing in the post 9-11 era, right? We have this very robust framework, of course, enshrined in the U.S. within the Patriot Act that's, you know, that it really is, you know, designed to go after terrorist assets. But I think it's it's time for us to sort of shift this a little bit and, under, and understand that 
financial transparency and kleptocracy really are national security uh, concerns for democracies as well. And that's why, you know, going back to what I was saying about, you know, finance being the forefront of national security in the coming era. Yeah, and I think that's something, you know, I really see growing up the agenda, that financial transparency, the financial sector security, and that hybrid element that you've been talking about, both within this Russian dark money report, but more broadly as well. Um, But I do want to just ask you a little bit around perceptions of security, you know, because these are very much based on where you sit in the world. You know, I lived in Central Asia for a period of time and the world looked very different there. And I equally know that you've spent many years in different parts of the world as well. So imagine your, you know, your counterpart in Russia. What will be on their mind when they read this report? Will, Will they have a different type of perception of the risks posed? What do you think? Um, I think yes and no is the answer. Um, And I agree with you, Justine, you know, one of the biggest dangers we can have is to only see these things through our own domestic lens, right? And I think that's why, you know, it's important for any national security professional to really live abroad and really understand the motives behind um, and the lifestyle in in a different country, right? Um, And I really think that we can't underestimate that. I think when we deal with specifically with, with Russians, and I've noticed this, there is so much mirroring and misperceptions of the other that are based on a similar set of factors. You know, I actually really enjoy talking to my Russian counterparts. I think we actually, you know, understand each other. You have a surprising amount in common. Fundamental, do Russians view US financial power as thwarting their priorities? Yeah, almost certainly, right? You know, it's easy, particularly when, you know, we talk about using the US dollar as a weapon ourselves, right? Which is something, again, I think we should avoid doing for these very purposes. You are implicitly threatening a foreign power, and they're going to see it as such. Now, you may continue to believe that, you know, that US policy is the right policy. But I think it's it's myopic not to realize what regulatory and, and, and almost linguistic effects of that rhetoric have. I think it's easy to say that, you know, Russia's goal, you know, is, is to be a thorn in the side of the West, right? Let's, you know, thwarting us from Libya to Syria to Ukraine to Venezuela. But I think that that's a talking point I'm also happy to throw away now that I'm no longer in the government, right? <laughs> I mean, what I would say, though, even if Russians might not be convinced that Western-style capitalism serves its people all that well, you know, I mean, there's skepticism among our own population, whether it works too, I fundamentally think that most Russians will understand that kleptocracy is not a good way to run an economy. That there is leadership at the top that is siphoning off resources that would be better served, distributed in a fair manner within the population. That much I can pretty much be certain of. Yeah, so those perceptions of risk not only are influenced by where you sit in the world, but where you sit in an individual part of the country, isn't it? You know, What's your relationship? Where are you at in that power structure? You know, one of the things our podcast listeners, you know, they follow the evolution of global sanctions, as, as you would expect in this podcast. So in terms of future horizon scanning, you know, can you just say a bit about what you expect to see by way of the use of sanctions within national security frameworks? You know, I'm particularly interested in, you know, hearing your thoughts on will, you know, this remain a US tool? Will it become something utilised by a range of other global actors, as we've seen the US increase their use of sanctions, we've certainly seen other actors looking at how they can respond and protect their own security interests. So what does the future look like, Julia? I think you're right that we have sort of provided a little bit of a maybe a, a model for other countries to follow. And again, it comes back to whether sanction is a, is a foreign policy diplomatic tool 
or whether you're talking about an asset freeze, because again, the, the reach of the U.S. dollar is unparalleled. So in that regard, you know, U.S. sanctions policy as such will be, mean, will be the most powerful of its kind. But I think that, um, you know, we've, we've learned the hard way over the past couple of years that sanctions really are an easy knee-jerk reaction to a complicated problem when we don't know what else we should do. You know, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where, you know, we'd say, if something is bad, what can we sanction? That's implicitly the wrong way to start because you're setting yourself up for failure, right? You know, you'd like, can you really achieve regime change in Venezuela through sanctions? Let's think that over carefully. And I think the incoming administration is going to think that through and, and things are going to quiet down a little bit, at least in the executive branch. Now, in Congress, of course, will probably continue to legislate. But we need to ask ourselves, you know, when is the, a sanction the best policy option, right? Are we actually freezing assets or just showing how mad we are? In how do sanctions interplay with other elements of economic statecraft, right? This goes back to sort of what we're trying to do with the Atlantic Council and the Geoeconomic Center is, you know, what is the role of an export control or a tariff or the use of CFIUS, right? Our investment security um, mechanism. Um, and how do we, how do we deconflict those? It's very easy when you're in the U.S. government, and again, going back to your previous question about, you know, perceptions on the inside or the outside. If you're sitting in the treasury department, it's very easy not to really understand what the commerce department does. Right. And, and we're, we're a big place. And so you need sort of that big tent considerations. The other thing is, you know, what is the value of a unilateral sanctions program? Despite the power of the U.S. dollar, it's almost calling for sanctions evasion. And I think this is really the time for us to say, how do we multilateralize in an effective fashion? If you really are sticking to the concept of, you know, a sanction is a regulatory measure within financial markets, then if you have that broader GDP base, you have diversified financial markets globally. The best way to do this is to have partners and friends um, and I think that the U.S. has gotten a little bit out of its boots on that in the past couple of years. So I think, you know, what you're saying is we're going to move into more of a cross transatlantic type of approach to sanctions and a merger of risks and trying to find common ground there. And I also take from that the use of sanctions is going to continue for potentially a long time to come. We did a webinar recently and somebody went, I'm looking forward to a quiet time in sanctions. And I keep saying to people, I don't think that's coming. I think they're going to stay um, complex for a long time. Look, this is a really fascinating conversation, but I do just really want to ask you one last question. And it's about walking into the White House for a national security meeting. You know, what does that really feel like? Do you feel the importance of it? Do you feel you're at the heart of shaping global policy and security? Yes. On a day-to-day -day basis, usually you're a bit busy and, you know, it's hot in Washington. And if you're running into the office, you're always sweating and wondering what you're missing and staring at your phone. The impact of those kind of conversations, the, the high-level conversations, becomes a day-to-day -day thing. Like, this is what I'm doing uh, today. Um, and, but you, and you always feel like you're running around spending five minutes on each issue and you can never really fix anything. Um, I think that's sort of a... Um, a perennial complaint of policymaking at that level. But there were some moments for me inside the situation room, right, during a very consequential conversation, when I realized, you know, I was in the center of the world and, and witnessing history in every comment being made. And my heart would race from the adrenaline of it, frankly. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a dream to be there. Um, you know, even if you don't necessarily politically support the policies that are being deliberated. I also wish that my closest foreign counterparts could also feel that way, right? So that they could sit next to me in that room so that they would understand what U.S. decision-making is like, right? And how you get a big, 
cumbersome bureaucracy together to wield the power of the world's strongest country. It explains our successes and our failures. It really usually hit me the hardest when I was walking out at night. Uh, it was always late, of course. It was always midnight. Um, you know, sleep isn't something you can get that often when you work at the White House. But it was when you close that gate behind you and it sort of has this weird clang to it uh, that and you, and you were re-released on the world into the night. You felt like you were, you were some strange beast, right, emerging into the real world. So, <laughs> you know, it was a, it's a very privileged and unique place to be. But I would say also not, you know, you shouldn't overestimate the power of being there as well, right? There, you know, U.S. power is, is a strong thing, but the persuasiveness and capabilities of our allies and partners are just as important to our own domestic policy as our own policies are to ourselves. Julia, thank you so much. You've talked us through from being at the centre of the world in policy making and national security considerations to now moving to your new role with the Atlantic Council and being able to look at things through a slightly freer and different lens. So we wish you luck with that. We'll follow very much of interest all the work that you're going to produce there. But I do hope listeners have enjoyed this podcast. Please do sign up as we move around the world to hear the stories behind sanctions. Julia, again, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you.